right, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me, Joe. You're welcome. You're welcome. So here we go. Week two of the mini podcast microcast thing that we do. <laughs> Incredible <laughs> branding by us. We've really nailed it. I, I feel like this is this is it's on the lips of every uh, everyone out there. Uh, the <laughs> whatever we call this thing, podcast. Uh, very yeah. exciting. We have a uh, uh, an interview with Jonathan Abrams, author of All the Pieces Matter: The Inside Story of the Wire, which is exciting. We actually have a draft. I have a draft with um, with Jonathan, and uh, and you're part of it, uh, even though you were. Uh, unable to be there uh you are a part of it and uh we'll we'll ask you about your picks uh a little later but uh but you know here we only have a few minutes uh that's the whole idea of the mini cast and uh i want to talk super bowl we're going to talk a little super bowl here maybe maybe if we have a minute or two on the end we'll talk baseball but really i think we need to focus on the super bowl there is something very specific i want to talk to you about with the super bowl but before that uh you were there. You took you took your yes. uh, you took your jerk son to Minnesota uh, for the Super Bowl. <laughs> How was that? How'd that go? So uh, it was very fun. My son uh, was not in any way accustomed to the cold. He has never yeah. been in real. He's never felt real cold before. Um, he had never seen snow actually falling from the sky, and it was snowing at the moment we landed. So that was kind of fun. Uh, it was very amusing to see how shocked he was by the cold like i kept telling him man it's gonna be really cold and he was like yeah yeah, yeah i get it but then it was like oh no this is actual cold and it in a weird way it, it it ironically warmed my new england heart to see my son actually experience what what actual cold is um that was fun the whole experience was fun i'm very happy uh for eagles fans because i as you know i have a thing where i don't like fan i don't like fan bases to suffer right um it's uh, it, the the origin story is very obvious i'm a red sox fan and so i'm i'm happy whenever there's the end of a long drought i loved it when lebron won a championship for cleveland that was great i liked it when the white Sox won i liked it when the phillies won i liked it uh i like all of those things the only really unpleasant part of it was that my son was wearing a Tom Brady jersey and a, and a Patriots hat and a number of Eagles fans got literally right in his face and yelled things like Tom Brady sucks. That's just uh, brutal. <laughs> just, brutal. Come on. Come <laughs> on, man. And there was a guy right behind me who was just dropping F-bombs the whole game and yelling F Tom Brady. And it's I was just about to turn around and then a guy actually t- behind him leaned forward and went, hey, man, there's a kid right there. And he turned around to that guy and yelled F Tom Brady even louder than he wow. had been doing it before. So, look, you can't judge any fan base by its worst members. Really, like every fan base, especially in the NFL, has terrible, terrible, <laughs> jerk, awful, miserable fans. Yes. But, boy, the Eagles, the worst of the Eagles bunch did not acquit themselves <laughs> very well. At the, and it was at the Super Bowl. That was the thing. It wasn't like we weren't in Philadelphia. They weren't like on their home turf. You know what I mean? Someone told me, I, I guess this is true. I don't know that the that the um, the Raiders fans, the insane Raiders fans 
have a have a rule which is no women, no kids. Do you know yeah. this? Uh, that is supposedly yeah. true. I don't know if it is true, but that is who knows. I, I'm sure. True. I'm sure that rule breaks down pretty quickly <laughs> in the second half of like a game against the you know yeah. uh, the oh, yeah. Seahawks or something. Yeah. But um, but but they the Eagles fans did not appear to uh, live by the same rules in any way, and and it was a bummer. That was the only real bummer about it. I'll tell you the most fun thing about the trip. In many ways, besides like seeing an, an insane game, it was an insane um, game. The most fun thing was we went to the night before on Saturday. We went to the Pelicans uh, Timberwolves game, and it was delightful. And Carl Anthony Towns and uh, Jimmy Butler and uh, Anthony Davis went crazy and like just hit like nine shots in a row. And there was no stress, and everyone in Minnesota was incredibly polite and kind and happy and nice. And uh, that that was so. It was a really fun big crazy sports weekend and the, it was only ruined by a, a general problem let's say in throughout nfl fandom which is just awful behavior yeah uh not specific not endemic to eagles fans but certainly exemplified maybe you would say by eagles fans. well yeah look it's it's not i mean it's it's a league-wide problem it really is i'll you know there, there are a couple things that strike me from that one is i grew up in cleveland so i grew up in cold i grew up in snow uh, I went to, I guess, I think it was either the NFC Championship game in 1998, uh, that crazy uh, NFC Championship game where where uh, Morton, not Morton Anderson, uh, Gary Anderson missed the field goal right. for the first time all year, and they end up losing to the Falcons. It was either that game or it was the week before. I was at both of those games, but one of those games there was like a a shuttle that was dropping us off, and uh, and the shuttle dropped us off on the wrong side of the dome. That was back when they had the, the the Metrodome. And it dropped us off on the wrong side. And I grew up in Cleveland and I was knew exactly how to dress. I knew exactly what to deal with. I my I've got the the cold weather blood. I mean, I I get it. I walked around the Metrodome just to get all the way around to get to the entrance. I, I was I thought I was gonna die. I thought there's there that's a different kind of cold there in Minnesota. That is yeah. that is a different level of of freezing so i'm glad that your son not only got to uh, embrace cold but the real cold that's yes that's actual cold, cold. Oh, this yeah. is what cold is yeah. yeah that's not like going to boston or even to cleveland and it being like 10 degrees you're like oh this is cold like yeah that's cold it's not minnesota cold that's like a minnesota different- is basically minnesota is where cold was invented <laughs> It's like going. It's like going to. If you want to drink a Guinness, you can't drink one in in Philadelphia or or, or Atlanta. You've got to go. You have to go to the country where it was made and drink it in a pub there. Right. Like that's the right. that's like what cold is for Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. They invented it. They perfected it. They've worked you know around the clock to to get the right kind of cold. Uh, they really have it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and and this is sort of larger issue about the NFL, and this is what I specifically want to talk to you about. Uh, the NFL drives me insane. I it's, it's it drives me insane on so many different levels, and uh, it, it frustrates me for reasons like you said. I don't think you can bring a kid to a game. I mean, you can. You would think the Super Bowl would be somewhat, uh, you know, shielded from what it's like to go to a regular season NFL game, which is nightmarish. I, we used to have Chiefs season tickets. And I look, I've been at a lot of sporting events. I don't think that that at this point there's anything anybody's going to say or any fight I'm going to see or, or any threat that I'm going to feel that's going to be new. I've been to a lot of games in a lot of places. But it was 
awful every week. And, and you know, it, they, like teams would come in like the – at that point, like I don't know, the Texans – you're yelling at Texas fans. What do you care about Texans fans? Like, how angry can you get at Texans fans, right? Uh, especially yeah. back then when they were terrible, but they would be awful. So I hated that. But here's the big here's the big issue. Um, there were two touchdowns in that game that everybody knows uh, were very, I guess, controversial. They were catches mm-hmm. that were made that were very controversial, and. Um, uh, you know, and there was also a great trick play that was also controversial because they didn't really have enough players lined up on the line. Apparently, they only had right. six people on the line. But here's here's what I wanted to say about the NFL, and this is sort of my baffled feeling: both of those catches, both of those touchdown catches by Eagles fans, are in my mind unquestionably touchdowns. They're unquestionably catches. That in football, as I understand the sport to be, mm-hmm. touchdowns. They're both touch. They, they got caught the ball. He never hit the ground. They got two feet in. Uh, in one case, the, he, there were three. He took three steps and jumped in the end zone. They're both absolutely in my vision of what football is. They're both touchdowns, and absolutely both calls should have been overturned. I feel I feel <laughs> both ways at the same time because the NFL is not football. The NFL is some other thing. And the first one where where he, he got the third foot uh, down, he was sort of bobbling the ball. That's that's overturned every week. I mean, there's there's not a week I see that that touchdown doesn't overturn. And I, again, I want to reiterate, that's a touchdown. In my mind, that's a touchdown. But Correct. not by NFL rules, it's not. And the second one was absolutely, we saw that exact play. Jesse James did that exact thing. No, so here's here, here's the thing. It wasn't exactly the same because when Jesse James did it, he caught the ball and dove sort of simultaneously. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't take three steps. That's true. He did not take an extra step. Zach Ertz t- caught the ball, had one foot down and a second foot down, then take a, took a third step and then reached out, which means he's a runner, which means he crosses the plane just like a running back does, well, which means yeah, it's a touchdown. But so did but Jesse, Jesse James. And, no, I mean, he didn't. If you actually look, look, I'm not arguing that this is a good rule, <laughs> but Jesse James's thing was different. He didn't take that extra step that quote-unquote turned him into a runner. I think the problem with that call, with that with that version of this, uh, of that, that aspect of the rule, the NFL has done a terrible job explaining the rule, not know. only to the people at home, but to the announcers, <laughs> and later when I watched the when I watched on TV, Collinsworth and 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 uh, uh, Al what's Michaels, his face? Yeah. Al Michaels didn't know they weren't able to say, "Oh no, here's the deal." There's he's a runner because they've just done such a bad job of explaining the difference. Yeah. But I believe that that one that one is absolutely uh, by the definition of the dumb rule. That's a touchdown no matter what, and it's also important to say it is different from the Jesse James play of the uh, Steelers against the Patriots in week 15 or whatever it was. However, the other one, the back of the end zone uh, uh, bobble, that ball absolutely moves in his arms. No question. He absolutely does not get two feet down in the end zone. That call is absolutely overturned in every regular season and probably playoff game leading up to that point. And yet it was not overturned. Again, I agree with you. It's ridiculous. It's obviously a touchdown. It should have been a touchdown. I'm not saying that the Eagles shouldn't have been given a touchdown because football's stupid. Right. However, that call goes the other way 99 times out of 100 over the course of the regular season, and they didn't overturn it in the in the 
Super Bowl. And I think the reason they didn't overturn it is because the league has been dinged so badly by this stupid catch rule. And in the weeks leading up to the game, Goodell was out there saying, we got to tear up the rule and start over. (laughs) And if you watch the actual call, and I heard it in the stands, because we were watching in in the stands, I was talking to, a couple Eagles fans, a couple nice Eagles fans, by the way, sure. who were right behind me. And they were them. like, oh, and, and the Eagles fans were like, oh, that's going to get overturned. Like, that's not a touchdown. He bobbles the ball. He only gets one foot down or two feet down, uh, one foot down, sorry. And they were like, shoot, they were already mentally prepared to give it up because they saw what we all saw, which was, yeah, that ball moved in his arms. Right. And according to what we've seen all year, that means it's not a touchdown. And then. They didn't overturn it. And if you listen to the actual call, the thing that Gene Steratore says is, after review, the ruling on the field stands. He says he really (laughs) emphasizes the word stands. He does not say is confirmed, which is what they say when it's like, yep, we were right. Right. Stands is what they say when they can't tell, when it's vague and they don't know one way or the other. That's actually the difference in the terminology, I believe. Yes. And clearly what happened was they looked at it and they went, oh, crap. That that is not a touchdown. It has not been a touchdown all year. And if we don't call this a touchdown, the entire story of this Super Bowl is going to be the over. It was third. Also, it was third (laughs) down. It would have been been fourth down. It would have materially changed the score in a very, very significant way in a tight game. And I believe that what happened, I will absolutely go to my grave believing this. I believe they in the booth were like, "Ah, yep, it's not a touchdown. And you know what? It's the Super Bowl. And we kind of they probably at some level were like, you know, the Eagles fans are going to burn that place to the ground if we call this this not a touchdown. And again, I'm with you. It was, of course, it should have been called a touchdown. It was a touchdown. It's what a touchdown is. The guy caught a ball in the end zone and got his feet down. And didn't drop it. He didn't drop the ball. I just don't, that, it it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. But your point is right. That, That, again, that's what I'm saying. That's why the NFL stinks right now. And I think it's a major, major problem for them. Um, because I just don't – you don't know how to feel about the game anymore because it's these stupid, stupid rules that they can't even clarify in their own minds and they call it differently whenever they want to call it. But that was – look, the the other one, Collinsworth, I think – and I think Chris is a fantastic announcer, by the way. Uh, I don't think he had a great game at the Super Bowl. And he was the one that just kept saying over and over again the Zach Ertz play was going to get overturned. Um, and he was wrong, uh, one, and he was wrong sort of in a larger way on that one too. But that first one, yeah, that's, that's flat overturned all the time by the way that the NFL calls the rules. I hope that they just go back to common sense, uh, rules on these. I don't know how you go back because I mean, it's been so ridiculous and stupid and com- football moves and complete the play and all these other nonsensical, uh, ideas, but I, I I hope they just go back. Look, if the ball, if you catch the ball and it and you have two feet down and you don't ever drop the ball, that's a touchdown. That's a catch. Yeah. You know, just yeah. enough of this. And I I like that they have that the there's two things I know about football rules. Number one, ground can't cause a fumble. Right. Number two, you if you if the ball goes to the ground and it goes out of your hands, it doesn't count as a catch. Those two <laughs> things are fundamentally incompatible. It's like the ground is okay, the ground is not okay. It just doesn't make any sense. They have to. I think they got to just empower the refs at some level because, uh, or or they got to say they've got to come up with a new rule, and the new rule has to be the ball can move around in your arms. 
if it if it like if it if you literally bobble it to the point where no part of your hand or arm is touching it right if it goes up in the air again go. very good right or right. something right. then it's not a catch but otherwise we just it's like the game it's it's just they're gonna note themselves to death and unless uh, the the sport is just gonna wither away and die I think so too. I really think so too. All right, we went too long on our mini cast, so we are going to uh, stop here. We'll talk baseball next week's mini cast, and uh, let's go to the interview uh, that I did and the fun draft. I think uh, that I did with Jonathan Abrams. Okay, really excited this week to have with me uh, my good friend Jonathan Abrams, uh, author of uh, well, sports writer uh, extraordinaire, but now author of the upcoming book. And when I say upcoming, I mean in just six days, uh, All the Pieces Matter, the inside story of The Wire. I guess I should say February 13th, since I have no idea when this podcast will actually appear. Uh, February 13th, All the Pieces Matter, the inside story of The Wire. We're going to talk a lot about The Wire uh, on the show and a little baseball. Uh, But first of all, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, This is really exciting for a lot of reasons. One, because because we're such good friends, but but even more, this is only the second live podcast that I've ever done. We are doing this uh, podcast in my home. We we happen, this is weird. We live like what, nine, eight, nine houses apart? I mean, it's insane. Close enough that I just walked down here just, in the rain. <laughs> just walked over in the rain and you're not even wet. I mean, that's how close we live. And uh, I have to say the last time I did a live podcast was with Keith Law, um, who just happened to be in town, came over to the house, we did it. It was a different setup. And because I'm the technological genius that I am, I had him sitting like five yards away from the microphone. Like I did, it, it didn't even occur to me like, oh, you know what? He, people aren't going to be able to hear him. So so it's me like, Keith, tell me a little bit about the Dodgers. And then it'd be like, rah, rah, rah. it was awful, just awful. So I think we have it a little better setup here because we are in my uh, – daughter's old bedroom which is a little tiny room this is probably the best studio you've ever been in would you say this is legitimate this is uh, <laughs> a couple doors down from where my toddler watches moana in, in joe's house <laughs> that's, that's exactly <laughs> right that's exactly right so i'm uh, very excited to talk about the wire first i do it's this is supposedly we have some baseball stuff going on and you obviously have, have you're, you're you're really a basketball writer. That's most of what you've done. You've done everything, but you've done uh, a lot of basketball. I think a lot of people would know you from your basketball work. Your first book was a basketball book. Um, you're a baseball guy, right? I mean, that's really where it started for you. I am. I grew up uh, outside of Los Angeles, and my goal was to always be a baseball beat writer until I covered a couple games, <laughs> and that was the end of that. <laughs> It goes quickly, doesn't it? I mean, it really goes quickly. It, it does. I like the NBA has a clock. You know when you're in, you know when you're out, and baseball has none of that. But you were a baseball fan, right? I mean, that's really – was. would you say that was your first love was, was baseball? I mean, baseball and basketball? Because you play basketball uh, a lot still to this day. Um, but w- what was baseball for you as, as a kid? I mean, baseball was by far my my first love, and I mean, it still is to to a pretty big degree. I mean, we just had our second born about six months ago, and his name is Aaron Kenneth after my two favorite baseball players, Hank Aaron and King Griffey. So, yeah, I have a deep love for baseball. I, you know, what's weird. I've I have held Aaron Kenneth, and uh, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> I don't think I knew that he was named after Hank Aaron. That is incredibly cool. I just got in trouble. Okay, so how about this? So. Uh, we are recording this on a Wednesday. On Monday was Hank Aaron's birthday. And of course, Hank Aaron is 
to all of us. But I mean, a huge, huge idol of mine. And I've been fortunate enough to, to spend uh, some time with him, to interview him on several occasions, uh, just did a very cool project with him. Wonderful, wonderful man. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do something kind of cool on his birthday where I'll just tell you a Hank Aaron stat you probably don't know. Uh, everybody knows the home run record, and that's why they all call him the true home run king, which I think he resents a little bit, uh, not because he doesn't necessarily – he doesn't want to get into whole Barry Bond stuff or whatever, but he was always so much more than home runs. He was a great hitter, just a great, great hitter, and a good fielder and a base runner and all the other things. Anyway, I put up the stat that if Hank Aaron had 200 fewer home runs, he would still have more total bases than Barry Bonds. Wow. Which is crazy, great. That's a, he's 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 in the stratosphere. If he had a hundred fewer home runs than he has now, uh, he'd still be the all-time record holder in total bases. He's he's way ahead of everybody. Anyway, everybody thought I was comparing Aaron to Bonds. I was just trying to make a cool birthday stat, and everybody's like, you know, half the people, well, more than half, are like, yeah, forget Barry Bonds. He stunk, you know, like like Barry Bonds wasn't incredible. And then the other half are like, how dare you use total bases as a measure? It, weird. Just people have weird feelings about baseball. It's, it's very weird. I mean, I'm not going to be a, a Keith Law on here, but I just <laughs> I wonder how much Barry Bonds was impacted by all those intentional walks he got. In oh, my gosh. Day. A ton. A ton. Right? Because he, here's the thing about intentional walks. And he – I've written this many, many times. I'm Bonds is extraordinary. He had the one year where he had 120 intentional walks. He broke the game. He was so good. You can say how he got there from a muscular standpoint, but from a hitter standpoint, a batting eye standpoint, he was he broke the game. He was that good. And those 120 intentional walks, almost without exception, are not just 120 walks. They're 120 walks with guys in scoring position. Uh, you know, I mean, that, there's, that's 250 potential RBIs probably. Now, for him, it's probably 300 because he, he would hit so many home runs. What was, the, what was it Buck Showalter who walked him with the bases? Yeah, loaded? yeah. He walked the bases, got walked with the bases empty. So he, 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 he did. He broke the game. He was, he was that good. Um, all right. Well, I, I, I would love to talk baseball with you. We should just have you back just to talk baseball. But the main goal here is to get people to to know about the the wire, uh, the uh, all the pieces matter. Um, we're going to have a fun draft. Where uh, do, do you know this? Because I sent you a, an email about it, but you might not have even seen it. Oh, I, I saw it. I was spent the last couple hours scouting. Oh, good, 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 good. We are going to have a draft. Michael, uh, I think everybody knows is busy dude, and uh, so he is. We, we're going to have our little mini cast, which you probably have already heard. I guess you. People would have already heard it since we played beforehand. Uh, but he sent me his his wire picks. So he is in this draft. We are going to have a three-person draft with Michael's picks, my picks, and your picks. But uh, let's first talk about the book. Um, a lot of us are huge fans of The Wire. Uh, how, how did this begin for you? How did, how did this whole oh, idea gosh. start? This was so much fun to work on. Uh, so it started, I'm not going to lie, my literary agent pitched it to me as an idea. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, the wire is huge for me. Um, you know, I've never seen a, that much range of characters, uh, narratives, and just the deep meanings behind the messages of the show. Um, so we, um, we drafted like this really heartfelt letter to David Simon, basically pitching why I wanted to do this, how I was going to you know, highlight the legacy of the show. And I'd be the perfect person to do this. Like, like really heartfelt letter. Uh, his response back from his assistant was like one line, just like, 
I, I don't care. He can do whatever he wants or <laughs> something like that. Which you would expect, actually, a little bit from David Simon. I, I, I took that as like the biggest green light I've ever gotten in, in life. And, you know, from there, I was off and running. Um, it was like that was a response from David. But it was like, you know, like his like blessing because nobody else would have went on for interviews if I didn't have his OK and his blessing. And his assistant was kind enough to put me in touch with some of the other major writers from the show and. The casting agent, um, her name is Alexa Fogel. She was so, so good about believing in this project and putting me in touch with people because people uh, ignored a lot of my calls, but they did not (laughs) ignore hers because she can actually get them work. Yeah, and she plays a prominent role in the book as well. I I think it is telling. You know, now, if you're a fan of The Wire, which I think many, many, many people who are listening are, uh, seems like there's a lot of Wire sports co-fans, right? I mean, it, it feels that way. Uh, if you're a fan of The Wire, you can't live without this book, seriously, because it's it's amazing how many people you got to. It's an oral history, but it's more than an oral history. You have a lot of, uh, of writing. I was actually a little, I was pleasantly surprised. There's a lot, uh, you know, you intro each chapter with some, some it's, it, there's a lot to read here beyond uh, the oral history, but the oral history is amazing. And you got everybody just about for this book, what was this project like? I mean, once once you started getting people, were other people more helpful, easier to get? Did you, did people ask you like, oh, did you get Stringer, you know, for this? I mean, how did that go? Yeah, it was definitely a snowball effect where some people originally said no because I'm I'm you know coming from this as a sports writer, right? Like I've never written about Hollywood or anything involving acting, so they don't know who I am. Um, and it was funny, like you know, some people at the beginning had said no, then I would come back to them and say, well, here's a list of people I've gotten to. Don't you want to also be included in this? You know, this is about your character and what you went through. Um, the other thing that was funny is like, you know, even like the, the actors who were barely in the show at all, I would email their publicists and I would get hit back on the reply with like five or six different people. So it would like include their manager and their agent and their publicist and the publicist assistant. And I was like, who are all these people? Like, every Hollywood person has like five or six people behind them. That's really, really funny because there are uh, even, you know, somebody who, who is a huge fan and has seen every show twice at, uh, at this point. Uh, there were a few people in the book that I'm like, who is that again? Wait a minute. What did, there are, first of all, there are, a lot of characters in the wire. I mean, there you, it's it's like reading the book. You forget, like, oh yeah, there was a whole season where that guy was like the main guy, and then he's gone, like for the rest of it, uh, which is incredible. But yeah, I think that's very very funny. That it probably was one of those cases where some of the harder people to get were some of the more minor people. I, would yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Um, Idris Elba, who played Stringer Bell, was one of the last interviews I got, and Alexa Fogel was adamant about. Uh, getting him for me so but before that there is there's some minor characters yeah there were two that i really really wanted to get for the book but i didn't end up getting one was hassan johnson who plays webay um he asked for 700 dollars for an interview which <laughs> it was very specific that's a number. weird number <laughs> Which I mean, I mean, I can understand being wanting to be compensated for your time, but if I would have paid everybody, I would have had a, a book, but not a house. <laughs> um, so the book does not include WeeBay for you, WeeBay uh, WeeBay fans. I know, but that's you know, <laughs> but that would have been. I, I wonder if like you could have done like a like an internet. Like I, I want to talk to WeeBay. 
will we raise 700 bucks? Would, <laughs> would there have been enough WeBay like interest out there you could have raised $700 for? Probably not. Probably you know, not. the funny thing is that his like GIF is like the most like wide used GIF out there of him like uh, looking in amazement that that when he finds out Kima is a cop, it's a really <laughs> short scene in The Wire, but that GIF is used for like everything and is everywhere. <laughs> WeBay was a good character. He, they, they were all good. They were all good characters. They were all. That's this is why when, when we do this draft, it's not gonna be that easy. It's not gonna it's not gonna be the rough. Um obviously this is the the brain uh child of both Ed Burns and David Simon and their relationship, which is really where you start the book, which is very, very fun and cool and uh and harsh. They, these guys, I mean, they were they're the, the funny thing is you would expect the people sometimes you're surprised. I think it's you would start there. Like you would be very, very surprised, I imagine, to talk to the actor who played Bubbles because he's entirely different from the character. And yet you would expect the people who created The Wire to be these hard-bitten Baltimore guys, and they are. They are. <laughs> <laughs> they are. That's really cool. So Ed Burns is uh, David Simon's co-creator on this show, was a longtime Baltimore policeman who became a educator in the Baltimore school district, which is where a lot of season four stems from. And he's basically this guy who like shuns everything Hollywood centric and Hollywood related. And he doesn't give too many interviews. And I was fortunate enough that he talked to me at length for this book. And he was like sitting with him was like, just like getting an education (laughs) and like life. And, you know, it just stems so much from outside the book. But I like when I completed the book and the books were finalized, I was I was asking everybody who I interviewed, do you want me to send you a copy of the book? <laughs> His reply was like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. I think that's great. Like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm happy to help you. No, I don't want to see it. No. Um, one of the things, and maybe to make a show this good, and, and you know, you have to go really, really deep, I would imagine. Uh, if you're the creators, the actors, some of the stories about what these actors did to get inside their characters is incredible. But but all of it feels like, because there's a, there's a whole season that clearly is inspired by David Simon's time at the newspaper. And there's a whole season that's clearly, or two seasons, really, that are clearly inspired by um, uh, Ed Burns's time in the schools. And then obviously all of the you know, drug on the corner and everything else that, that comes in the show is inspired by their, all of them, you know. Uh, but they really, this is a very, very personal show, probably in ways that that go beyond maybe some of the other shows. Yeah, I mean, they're experts in what they're writing about. Uh, season two with the docs was inspired by Rafael Alvarez, who worked with David Simon at the Baltimore Sun. And his dad was a tugboat engineer for, for a very long time. And uh, season three, a lot of that driving force is Bill Zorzi, who covered politics for a long time at the Baltimore Sun. So I think one of the big things that stuck out to me in talking with David Simon is that, so The Wire is obviously a fictional show, but everything he said that came out of The Wire, it started with the kernel of fact, where it was something that Ed Burns or David Simon knew to be true, or they had heard that it was true, or just that this could possibly be true. And they spun it out of that world. So everything started from fact. Yeah. Well, it feels that way. I mean, the realism of the show, it's obviously it's calling card, right? Is how realistic the show is. Um, But I would also say one of the calling cards is, is that I wouldn't say it's, 
I, I, I don't know exactly how to say this because it's bleak. The show is very, very bleak. And yet there are signs of hope sort of spread out throughout the, the, the shows. And, you know, I follow David Simon on Twitter. He's a bleak guy. I mean, you can, you can tell, and Ed Burns, you can tell from the book is a bleak guy. And, and I wonder if at any point they felt like the show is, the show is offering no hope at all. There's, there are no good people in the world. There's, you know, the show is, is, you know, the good people that are out there are getting run over and, and there's so much corruption and, and it's, and it goes so deep. You won't believe how deep the corruption goes. Uh, I do wonder, like, how were they able to sort of keep that equi- equilibrium where they didn't just turn this thing into like, oh, man, there's just well, what's the point? What's the point of even living? So I think that was a that was actually an argument um, early in the show between David Simon and Sonia San, who played Ke- uh, Detective Kima Greggs, where David said at one point that there was no hope or he was presenting a show of no hope. And they were arguing two different things. Um David was saying that in these institutions that he's portraying, uh, you know, the school system or the media or the police department or politics, that these institutions have been lurching along aimlessly and they're not protecting the individuals in it, that they offer no hope. And that, you know, one person like Detective McNulty in the first season is just hopeless against trying to go up against this huge system that is betraying the people it's supposed to protect. But then within those lurching institutions, you see that occasionally people can rise up and offer that hope that the institutions lack. Yeah. Now that's, and in some ways, because it is bleak and look, the world is bleak, right? I mean, we all know that there, there are, you know, that, that, that this is true, but boy, those signs of hope were just like, just, they, they were like life rafts, you know, in the, in the middle of this, you'd be looking around and, you know, I especially think of the ending, look at the, how the, the, the series ends where, you know, some don't make it, but some do, you know, and, and there's just, I, I just think that made the show so much more powerful because I think, I think it could have been, you know, I, you look at Breaking Bad, that there, there's no signs of hope at the end. I mean, I don't think, I don't feel like I didn't walk away from Breaking Bad feeling like there was anything to hold on to, really. I mean, maybe, maybe Jesse, maybe Jesse, right? But, but you know, that's that's about it. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that I thought that was what sort of made part of what made the wire great. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, and I think you know that I remember going into the finale, watching that in real time, wondering how they were gonna tie up every loose strand and loose end and they did it so magnificently where they basically showed that this is just cyclical that you know this goes on that even the people who die off are replaced by a a new generation and that this thing is just endless i think ed burns said that the baltimore police call it dandelion cases where you pluck one up and three others grow yeah it's amazing it's amazing all right obviously um if you watch the wire uh, this is, you have to have this book. I mean, it's amazing. And, and it'll, it so deepens your sense of the show, your knowledge about the show and, and a full appreciation of the show. I mean, I really want to see the, the show again, based on reading this. Uh, Michael Shore brought up an interesting point though. He thought that the book really was excellent at, um, sort of explaining what it's like to make a TV show, what it's like to make, Sort of a, even beyond that, a piece of art, uh, the the depth of 
of of caring, uh, all the different people you have to you know go to, all the different ideas you have to incorporate, and all that. I mean, you know, for those people who have not seen The Wire, uh, which I'm sure you would encourage them to do, um, there's a lot to get out of this book even then. Yeah, I mean, obviously. Michael would know about that more than I would. Um, but, you know, just knowing that those guys, most of those guys had journalism backgrounds, or at the very least, writing backgrounds with George Pelicanos and Richard Price and all these, Dennis Lahan and all these amazing writers that, you know, they knew how to write. Yeah. And what was interesting to me is that prior in their career, it was really an isolated effect where they're working in an office by themselves. It may be just them and their editors. Then David Simon tags them as part of this all-star team to put together this amazing show. And they're all working together, all trying to show that they're the best writer and all eventually having to put their ego aside to put pen to paper and cards up and be able to come up with this amazing show. So talking to them about what this process was like and and coming together almost as this all-star team was, was special to me. Yeah. Well, I think it reads everything. It reads that way. All right. We're going to start our draft before we do. uh, There is one other point I wanted to make uh, specific to this. And that was that the show was not a success for a long, longer than I thought. Like usually this is like, yeah, the first season, sort of like the office, the first season of The Office, nobody really watched, whatever. But then second season, it started getting its wing. People didn't get this show until, like, it was almost over, it feels like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny because in real time – well, first of all, not a lot of the actors, like, thought that the show was going to be picked up, you know, <laughs> once they shot the pilot. Because most of them didn't even know what they were talking about or what they were saying. And, you know, David Simon didn't give the characters – you know, he didn't say what their characters were going or what they were going to do beyond this episode. So all the actors were really perplexed by this dense <laughs> show. You know, I think Dominic West told me, like, half the time he had no idea what McNulty was even saying. Um <laughs> And yeah, you're absolutely right. Nobody watched it. But I think one of the things that was interesting to me was that Andre Royo, the actor who played Bubbles, was like, nobody watched it. So it it gave David Simon and Ed Burns the creative force or the creative means to be able to completely revamp the show season two and bring on the doc story where nobody had nobody saw it going that way and nobody had seen a television series switch up so much and it kind of provided the path for the subsequent seasons. I think there's, there, there has to be something to that. I think if you're, if you're extraordinarily popular, if you're Game of Thrones, that has to affect how you write the show. It has to affect how you, you know, people have favorite characters and you have to deal with, and it, it didn't feel like they were constrained at all. It's like wherever the story went, that's where they went because it wasn't like they were trying to, impress people nobody was watching the show especially in those early years yeah and you know i think david simon when he pitched it to the hbo executives that he was doing this for season two they were like what (laughs) what in the world is going on like we just picked you up for a second season and you're telling us you're not going to have all these you know characters that we fell in love with with season one but david was like wait i have a plan i want to show this whole world it's really cool it's really cool all right we're going to do our draft uh now and and by the way in the draft i want to tell uh, my favorite story in the book. So I want to pick what my, I've got my I've got in my mind what my favorite story is. So I'm, but I want to wait till the character comes up in in the draft. So um, I have Michael's picks and I have my own picks. And I'm but what we're going to do is let you have the first pick in in the wire character draft, uh, and then I'm going to have the second pick because I'm going I want there's a guy I want and Mike has him too high on his list. So I'm going to have the second pick and then Mike will get the third pick. So what what are we going for? 
I just, um, I just think it's Mike and I never, <laughs> we never, we never figure out what the, we, he'll just say like, oh, let's draft foods. And then we'll just draft. We don't, it's the favorite foods. Not, it doesn't matter. So however you want to judge it, uh, heck you could do it if you want. It's like your favorite people to deal with. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Okay. However you want to do it. I'm going to go by the, the characters that I would want on my side. If I get into trouble. Oh, I like this. Oh, uh, I didn't so think of it that those way. Those are the guidelines I'm going to go by. Okay. Uh, so my number one pick is going to be Sonia San's Kima Greggs. Wow. Wow. All right. Explain. Explain. Uh, she is honest, natural police, and uh, I know that she'll be there when uh, everything hits the fan. Yeah, Kima's strong. Kima's high on my list. Uh, uh, very, very strong character. And, you know, I, I mean, again, tell us a little bit about uh, Sonia's background because I didn't know any thing about that as you know this was kind of her first like big television thing it, it was and then she was uh shocked to find out that when she landed the role that they had planned to kill off Kima <laughs> in the first season <laughs> and another character told her that right like yeah. like she was just having a conversation with another character like oh man I'm really sorry they're killing off your character yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm, I'm taking Mike and I just so happen to have the first, the same person. Uh, so I don't know what's fair or not, but I'm just going to go ahead and take it. I, I'm going to take bunk uh, as my, as my first pick. Uh, not, not so much for the guy I'd want on my side, although boy, the scenes of bunk and McNulty checking out a crime scene, just the, it, with complete silence, them just walking around. That's, Brilliant. Now, did that come from something? Was that like, uh, was that was that something Ed Burns had had done himself or witnessed himself? Yeah. So that was something that David Simon had heard from one of the, I think one of the detective sergeants that he had known for a long time. They were at a scene together, and he said that, you know, pretty soon these detectives are going to know each other well enough that they're going to be able to go through a crime scene just using expletives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so he wrote that scene. It's amazing. It's a. It's just an amazing scene. But Bunk is first of all, he's hilarious. He's he's incredibly funny. Uh, but there is a depth. It, it it's always about him not you know caring and and you know him all him. But it's also it's about how much he cares. Exactly. That's what makes him such a cool character. Is he's always putting it off like he doesn't care. He doesn't care, and he cares more than anybody in the end. Uh, Love Bunk. All right, so Bunk's my pick, and that leaves Mike with his second pick, which I'm sure he'll be very, very happy with. Uh, he's going to take Omar Little, uh, who probably – I think Omar was favored to be the first pick overall. So you going with Kima took us in a whole different direction. Um, Omar, what? What is Omar? That, that, there's never been a character anything like Omar on television. No. I mean, <laughs> just in the different ways. And you know what? Like I said, everything from The Wire sprang out of truth. So this was like Omar was a composite of like six, seven people that David Simon and Ed Burns had come across in their previous careers. <laughs> this is like a, a combination of a, a real person. That's amazing. And the fact that Omar was cast, Michael uh, K. Williams. K. Williams was cast because somebody remembered that he had a scar or yeah, something. Yeah, so that's, that's amazing Alexa. She, he had auditioned, I think, for Oz for her, because she had also cast Oz. And she had him in her in her mind somewhere, and she pulled that out. And yeah. <laughs> hey, someone with a scar. Uh, he, but he's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. And, and 
you want to talk that's what's wonderful to me about all the characters in the wire is there no they're no one-dimensional characters in the wire i mean what is omar is omar good is omar bad he's he's everything he's he's all-encompassing he's really bad and he's really good i mean it's love it all right so that omar mike will be happy with omar okay so we're coming to the second round second round uh i'm gonna go with the brother muzon Ooh, interesting all right go ahead why uh, he's another character that i uh, i know i can depend on in, in the crunch and he is a guy who i was talking to the actor about him and he he basically said that he thinks he totals about 25 minutes time a total in the wire but the presence he left is just so big that yeah. i would say that he's the only character who was on the level of omar as far as uh mixing together you know, smartness and, and street tough yeah toughness. yeah he's a wonderful character and that's that is amazing if he's really i mean because you think about him i mean he really wasn't around much, you know, and yet, yeah, he left such a such a powerful impact. Excellent pick. All right, uh, my second pick. I'm going. I'm going straight forward. I'm going for Stringer Bell. Um, in large part, look, he's a great character. All right, so he's the he's the gangster who who's trying to bring legitimacy to the to the world. Right, he's the he wants to be a businessman. He he longs he longs to be something more, uh, and yet, you know. You can't, you know, that's, that's sort of the lesson is you can't, but I'm just going to say it. It's really amazing because it's Idris Elba, right? I mean, he's, he's just so good in everything that he does. Um, but he just, he just leaps off the screen and, and I will say, and this is the same thing is true for McNulty. The first time I heard Idris Elba actually talk, I, my mind was, he's, he's from London. I mean, it's not just an English accent. It's the English accent. And like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that at all. Even talking to him and Dominic West for this book is weird <laughs> because, you know, you're so used to hearing them in their McNulty and, and Stringer Bell voices that hearing them talk with their British accents is really, really funny. And that, you know, it's funny. That was something that like weighed heavy on Idris Elba when he was shooting the show, because that was, you know, before he's a big movie star and internationally known. And so when people would see him when the show was actually on wanting to, you know, see Stringer Bell in person and he disappointed <laughs> them with this British accent, it weighed heavy on him. It's there's a great scene. I'm not even going to go into. It. There's a great scene in the book about uh, about Idris Elba and uh, Dominic West uh, talking about accents and how hard it was to do it. So it's wonderful. All right, Mike's second pick is uh, this will come. This is this is going to get you. Snoop. Snoop oh. is the second pick. Nice. All right. So Snoop is is the just. You know, you can if you had to if you had to pick who is the most cold hearted killer. In the wire, it's probably Snoop, isn't it? Then there's nothing, there's no feeling about human life in Snoop at all. None. No, her and her partner in the in the series, uh, Chris Partlow. Yeah, but Chris shows emotion with a, the, a little bit with that one scene. Yeah, where he beats up a guy, but yeah, Snoop was. I mean, it was. <laughs> The only emotion was it was fun for her. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In other words, it, it, you're exactly right. There was emotion. It just like couldn't be, couldn't be more, uh, couldn't be happier. Uh, and again, another character that we've never seen anything like it. That which I think is what Mike is going to be happy about when he when he views his team and puts them out in the field uh, is he's got 
the most two, I'd say the two of the most unique characters in, in history of television. All right. The, the funny thing, too, is that so it was Michael K. Williams, Omar, who found Snoop in a bar and invited her <laughs> onto the show <laughs> in real life. And then the David Simon and Ed Burns developed this role for her. That's that show is the the way people got their roles on this show is uh, nothing. That's awesome. It's so fun. It's so fun. All right. You got your third pick. So I'm going to really surprise you with this pick. Uh Oh, I am going with my third pick. Stan Valchek. Wow. Really? Stan Valchek. You really he like is. the minor. You like going, you like going deep. You, you say minor, but he's this like minor, minor, minor guy at the beginning. But as the show continues and advances, he's in up as a policeman, right? Yes. But he's very high in charge. He knows how to play the game. He does know how to he play the game. He knows how to play the game better than anybody. And by the end of the show, he's the police chief. He is the police chief. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, that's a really good point. How does he maneuver through? Because he is clearly incompetent. He is like, an awful policeman. <laughs> he's just a terrible policeman. How does he maneuver? I mean, I guess that's that's the beauty of the wire is that is that he's the guy that at the end of the day is running the show. You know, that's but I guess there is there is like uh, I want to say like a respect paid to people who are not great people, not even necessarily all that competent, but know like where the bodies are buried and knows how to deal with like the politics of the, of the world. I know that Valchek will be able to get me the dirt and know how to use it. <laughs> he would know how to use it. All right. Well, good. So I've got my uh, third pick and my third pick is actually my fourth overall pick. So it's good. I'm going to take McNulty. Um, there, there are two things that, that, that I want to say about McNulty. McNulty. One is you talked about this a little bit before McNulty. The show is about McNulty. In the first season, it's McNulty's show. He's clearly the main guy in the show. Obviously, there are lots of main characters, but the show revolves around McNulty, his problems, his issues, his 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 attempts to to do good, uh, all of those things. He's not even in the second season. You hardly you hardly see him, right? I mean, he just totally disappears. What other show has ever even tried anything like that? Where it's not just that the whole uh, plot of the show switches and now we're on the docks instead of on the street um, where you take away the character that you've sort of built your whole show around in some ways. Uh, and you're going, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you at some point, you know, but, but you're gone. That, that, that's what a bold move that was. It's like if, uh, if you see Walter White the whole first season and then the second season is all about Skyler and right. Walter right. comes home for dinner. And that's, that's exactly what this is like. You're like, Wait a minute! Did I dream the first season? I I think that guy was like a major. It was to it got to the point in the second season where you'd see McNulty and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Wait a minute! Uh, they just totally buried him, and uh, and then of course he comes back and in, in, in probably wonderful character, well brilliantly played. But uh, the second thing I want to do is my favorite story in the book, which is, uh, and you'll know it immediately. Um, so he's it's just during the first season he's having a uh he's having sex with um the assistant uh district attorney uh Dee Dee. So he's having sex with Dee Dee and and apparently and I was not aware of this until I read your book. Uh realism is realism. So they're really they're completely naked. 
uh, and they're having sex other than, you know, just very small, you know, coverings. Um, completely naked and, and obviously getting very, you know, it's, it's an intense love scene. And McNulty, uh, Dominic West, before they get started, he says to her, this is weird. Last week I was on uh, I was on Renee Zellweger. Like <laughs> last week I was having I was I, it's weird to be on top of you. Last week I was on top of Renee Zellweger uh, because he was in Chicago. He was the husband that uh, Renee Zellweger killed uh, in Chicago. Nothing, the husband, the lover that uh, uh, she killed in Chicago. And um, boy, that's bold. <laughs> that is that is really bold. Bold enough that when you asked him about it, he was sort of like. Really? Did I say that? Really? Yeah, I think he called himself a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. They're actors. I get it. Last week I was on Renee Zellweger is a very odd thing to say to somebody when you're about to play that kind of scene. (laughs) I'm trying to think of what the actress in The Wire, Didi Lovejoy, actually said. Um but yeah, I I don't even know if Dominic West remember that. But if you draft Dominic, I think I think McNulty is going to get the coach fired. I would be be nervous about that. (laughs) No, there's no doubt. There's, there's no doubt. I've taken, I'm hoping for bunk to kind of keep him uh, in line, but I got to be honest, he didn't keep him in line on the show. So um, yeah, Stringer maybe keeps him in line. I, you know what? You're right. McNulty, (laughs) I've just, I've just drafted, I've just drafted the big problem uh, guy for my team. Um, All right. Well, uh, Michael's third pick is going to be, Lester. Lester is his third pick, which is great. Lester is uh, was actually next on my list as well. And, uh, and yours, see? All right, so talk about Lester. What a what a fantastic character. I mean, the title of the book comes from his quote. Yes. Uh, um, you know, he's this old detective who's kind of cast aside and nobody really pays attention to him. And quietly, he's solving the, the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's so... Well, there, there are two things about him. One is that he's so um, throughout the throughout the show, he's so above board, right? He's the by the book guy. He's smarter than just playing by the book. I mean, he's he's working all sorts of deep ends, and he's got all kinds of cool uh, things that he does. Uh, but he's he's sort of by the book, and then he's one of the guy that turns in season five. I mean, that's you know, it helps McNulty. Uh, with with the whole uh, you know fake uh, murder or whatever, um, so that's really cool because I mean Lester was there was like nothing not to like about Lester going into season five and then you see even even the best of us can sort of uh, fall in 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 an effort to what we think is the right thing. Second thing is those awesome little miniatures that he made. Like the, like where the heck did that come from? So I think it doesn't make the book, but I asked him about that. Like, where does he think that it comes from? And I think he said that Ed Burns knew like a, a detective who used to make doll houses to solve crime scenes or to look at crime scenes in like a miniature way and like have a bird's eye view of them. But obviously the show never explained that. Never explained, but it was awesome. It was just very, very cool. I, I don't know. Just a, a nice thing. So uh, I think a very good pick for Mike. So that's that's a steal at three. That's solid. Uh, I'm going to go with Andre Royo, who played Bubbles. Okay. Um, character full of heart who never gives up. He's, he's, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this. This is going to disappoint you. 
Bubbles not on my list. He's not on Mike's list. <laughs> we just and and I will I will say this. It wasn't that Bubbles is a great character. All I could do was when I was making my list was go from the heart of who I would get really excited about when I would see on the screen. Like which plot line was I really, really into at that moment. I never was so like totally into Bubbles plot lines. Really? I mean, he was great. He was an amazing character. I, there were parts of Bubbles that, of course, I really liked. And I really did like at the end when he was trying to clean up and his sister. And that was a cool thing. But uh, there were other people that just always liked like, Bubbles was taking their time, you know, for me as a, as a viewer. Um, but I'm going to say this again for the book. Totally new uh, sense of respect for Bubbles based on the actor. I mean, talk a little bit about the dedication that he put into this character. It's insane. I mean, he was just one of the best interviews I think I've ever had in my life. <laughs> um, he really tore himself down to get into character for this guy. Um, I think he said that he was going to deprive himself of, I guess, a lot of pleasurable things that he had done before. <laughs> I won't get into it, but well, one of them was Coke. We can say Coke, but Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Yeah. He was going to, or not watching basketball to try to see what addiction was like when you no, crazy. didn't have things that you were used to having. I just thought that was so fascinating, what you need to do to get into character. And nobody got deeper in that character. There's another great scene in the book of, of when he runs into an actual uh, drug addict uh, who is there to, to try. It's a, I'm not going to ruin it. It's a great, great story. All right. My, uh, I guess, fourth round pick is, you know, there, there are people down the list that I really, really want. I feel like I'm going too mainstream. Uh, so I don't want to go that mainstream. I feel like I have too many major characters. So I want to go, my last two, I'm going to go a little bit off, not off the beaten path, but not main characters. So my fifth, my fourth pick is going to be Prop Joe. Um, great character. Great, great, great character. And again, sort of in the opposite of Bubbles, again, no offense, we get so excited when Prop Joe was on the screen and maybe my favorite ever uh, sort of scene on the wire is when Omar comes in to, to get the clock from prop Joe, just that back and forth. It's like an acting clinic for these two guys who are not, you know, necessarily well-known actors before they start the wire. They're not known at all. And here they go in and they just prop Joe is like, you know, just trying to, he knows how, close he is to getting killed and 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 you can sense that tension and yet on the other hand you you can get the sense of of how omar's mind is turning and what he's going to be it's i love that scene so so much so uh prop joe right great character right real yeah real quick so the actor who played prop joe robert chu passed away a a couple years ago unfortunately, but he was actually an acting coach in, in Baltimore. And wow. I didn't know that beyond his influence on that character. He was basically an acting coach who stewarded uh, the main kid actors in season four, who coached them through that whole season. And all of them really, really talked about how influential he was for them. Fascinating. I, like I said, that, that to me was just like, you know, everybody always talks about, like, that scene in Heat where De Niro and, and Pacino are, like, across a table from each other and how it's an acting clinic. And eh, I'm not sure I'd buy it. But that, to me, watching Omar and Prop Joe, that I, I can watch that scene. I Every so often I'll just go on YouTube just to watch that scene. <laughs> I love that scene so much. All right. So Mike's fourth pick then is – all right, let's go down the list here. Bunk. All right. So he 
All right, we're down to his ninth choice, uh, which is Randy. Thinking Randy, that's mm. that seems high to me. Well, what do you think of Randy as a character? Maybe, maybe potential. <laughs> maybe he's going on potential. Taking he's, one of the he's, kids. He's hoping they bring they bring it back so that he can. Uh, well, what, what do you think? What what stands out to you about Randy? I mean, Randy is he's a really interesting character, and it was really interesting talking to the actor who played him. Um, his name is Maestro Harrell, where he said that Randy was basically this really bright-eyed kid with this, like, you see the, the light almost go out in him throughout the course of the show um, through circumstances that he didn't really create but are forced upon him. And so that's what I think about when, when I think about Randy. And I think about that great scene where Sergeant Carver leaves him after Randy's house gets burned down and he has to go back into foster care, you know, screaming at Carver saying, are you going to take care of me? Or are you going to watch out for me? That scene really sticks out for me. So I question Mike's pick, but I don't <laughs> question Randy. Yeah. He's, he is, a, he is a good character. He really is a good character. There's in, you know, somebody had to sort of be the character that's that, that defines what, what the cost is of everything. And he, he sort of defined that. So Good character, but I'd be curious why he had him as high on the list as he did. So, but that's that's for Mike to explain himself later. He's gonna have to talk to the press. They're gonna say, you know, there were so many guys on the board. He went with Randy. That was a little early for Randy there. All right. So your fifth and final pick. I think I have to go with State Senator Clay Davis. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I think having him and Valchek on the same team, they will know how to talk themselves out of anything, how to get dirt out of everybody, know how to play it and how to use it. Uh, Clay Davis was a guy who, I mean, <laughs> talking with the actor who played him, he was like, man, I was even believing the things that Clay Davis was saying. I, th I think you have to, to get into that type of character where, I mean, he believed it. I mean, you could see that he had his hands out, but, you know, maybe you also think twice about it and think deep, more deeply about it. And maybe Clay Davis was probably out there helping people. You know, yeah, first of all, there, I think there is some truth to that. I think he was doing it uh, sort of on the side, like it wasn't his priority, but he did just help people because he just, you know, did. Um, I'm writing this book on Houdini and uh, he's, he's the Houdini of this show. He's, how many times has Clay Davis nailed on the show? They've just got him absolutely nailed. And not only does he get out of it, he gets out of it. He's like stronger than ever when he gets out of whatever trouble they put him in. I mean, he is a genius. He's an absolute genius. That's I love that. That was that was potentially going to be my fifth pick. Um, so I, I want to go with somebody you know minor, somewhat minor. Um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. With my fifth pick, I'm going to take Jay Landsman uh, for two reasons. Again, two reasons. One, he's hilarious. He's just he's just the, he's he's the guy on the show that feels most like sort of the the cop that you've already seen before, like the cop that's on other shows. So he's not a he's not necessarily a super unique character, but he's hilarious and he's fun and he keeps the whole thing together and and. You know, when he leads the, 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 you know, when they go to the bar and he's sort of leading the chart, it's just a, it's just awesome. The character, that's just awesome. The second reason I'm going to take him though, is directly from your book. There is a real Jay Landsman who played on the show, but he didn't play himself. And um, he, <laughs> I guess at one point, if you want to tell the story, 
David Simon, what did he, 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 first of all, he, he told Jay Landsman that this other guy is going to play him. And what, what was his response? I think he said like, you're good, but you're no Jay Landsman. <laughs> is what he told the actual Jay Landsman. He told the, and then he, and then, and the Jay Landsman who plays on the show is considerably heavier than the real Jay Landsman. So I guess the real Jay Landsman, not that thrilled about that. No. I, but but he's a great character, right? He, he sort is. of ties he, it all together. Yeah, he's the guy who's stuck in the middle, who's getting it from the guys above him and the guys below him and trying to just keep the ship afloat. Yeah, and what's cool is you're never entirely sure what's going on behind behind the sort of jovial and, and you know, like, is he a good cop? Is he a bad cop? Is he just sometimes a good, sometimes... That's what it feels like to me. Like, much of the time, all Jay Lansman cares about is what's going to make my life easier yeah. and better, right? But there are moments throughout the series where he, he like, sort of puts his neck on the line a little bit to be a good cop. And it, they don't come off that often, but when they do, it's sort of fascinating. I, I, again, I think that's what that show got so right. All right, so for the fifth pick, um, Mike is going to take Michael as the fifth pick, which is a really better than Randy. That's a better pick. He has a young team. He has a, he has a, he has a young team that's going to build. He's going to build, and Omar is going to lead the way on this that. Is like a dynasty mode. <laughs> Michael is a fantastic character. I mean, I, I Michael was on my list. Randy was not, but Michael was on my list. Um, so talk about Michael. The thing I like about Michael is that we see him in ways that other guys do not sort of rise above the system in some ways. I mean, he doesn't, he, it, it's a bad ending for him in a lot of ways, uh, but he's, he, he holds on to who is, who he is and doesn't allow, he doesn't allow the environment to determine who he is. Yeah. I mean, he's a, in the show lineage, he's the next Omar. He's the next Omar. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's a good one. All right, who wins this draft? Who I wins? do. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> well, well uh, people will tell us who wins the draft. It Really, you should win it. You did write a book where you talked to all these people. Um, so the book is All the Pieces Matter, uh, the inside story of The Wire. comes out on Tuesday. You know what I think you really enjoy doing? Promoting books. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of your favorite things to do. Uh, Jonathan is such a modest guy and, and, uh, you know, when you, have to, when you have to go out there and talk about the book and talk about yourself, it's not super comfortable, but gotta do it. It's either promoting it or getting stabbed in the eye. I don't know which one I prefer. <laughs> it works. It works both ways. It works both ways. So I'm going to ask you this. You, you've, you've written a book, so you've done this. Are you one of those people that tries to keep an eye on Amazon and what the number of your book is? I mean, uh, I have... I try not to, but it's it's tough because it's tough. I, I think you know I love Shea Serrano. He's like, he helps me out so much on on Twitter, and you know I think it's because he likes to raise up my anxiety levels. <laughs> <laughs> so with with him, I normally know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I would I would hope that uh, why didn't you just give this to Shay as a uh, Shay? You promote this book. Because he's like a genius. He's like a promotal, promotional he's, genius. He's ahead of his time. His fan base is so remarkable and so uh, just energized by Shay that it's it's really amazing what he's been able to cultivate. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. And working on a working on a show with Michael. So so uh, that's uh, which is very very cool. All right. Well, this was awesome. Can't thank you enough for joining uh, us. I'm going to in the close to this. Uh, 
because you know I only do a few minutes with 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 Mike on this show now uh, until he's starts being freed up. Hopefully, um, I'm going to ask him what the Randy pick was about because I that's the one that sort of stands out to me is like no, it's I'm not going to say it was as bad as like Brandon McCarthy taking you know taking. Uh, whatever midnight and whatever Sarajevo or whatever. Uh, but it's not a good pick. Yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think I see the potential there possibly, but I'd be interested in hearing. I want to hear what he said. All right. Well, we'll get him to do that after, after this. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, all right. Well, that was a super fun interview uh, and draft that I did with Jonathan Abrams. By the way, uh, here's, here's something uh, cool. This was I got to do this live with Jonathan in the same room uh, because because he lives right down the street. So he just That's walked right. over. That's yeah, right. he, he walked like over. Eight houses down. Yeah, right. So he just walked over in the rain. It was it, we lived so close. He walked over in the rain, and uh, and then we did this interview in in uh, in in my daughter's old bedroom. Now a, a little bit of a guest room uh, was awesome, and it occurs to me we've never done a podcast together ever. Nope. We've never nope. never been in the same room. Never, not once. That seems like we should fix that. Eh, I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know what people are demanding is a live podcast, like a live event podcast. Don't you think? Don't you think that people are demanding that? Here's the uh, thing. Here's our goal. You and I uh, get to Radio City. We do a live podcast at Radio City in front of a live audience, and then we retire. That's That's the end game for us. I, by the way, the day we get to Radio City will be the day we will be at retirement. I mean, the only way they'll be doing that is like, just this will this will end it. This will finally get them to stop. All right. You have to. I mentioned this during the draft. Uh, you, every Jonathan was very pleased with your picks. Uh, you, you did very well, very well in the draft. You got Omar, which I right. think you have to be super duper happy about. Um, and then and then your 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 drafts were you got Snoop. Uh, which is oh, you know, pretty good. Great. You're, you're cold blooded, man. Your whole team is cold blooded. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty great. So so very impressed until well, Randy. Like, well, how did Randy get so high on your draft board? Well, as you asked me to text you my picks, and I did, and I texted you like 35 names immediately. <laughs> And I said, like, this is roughly in this order. And I also later, as soon as I sent it, I was like, I didn't put in Chris Partlow. I should have put him right. in. Right. I, uh, I didn't put, there were a couple other, oh, I didn't put Presbo in. I love Presbo. But you know I, what? You I, know what? Neither one of us put bubbles. He chose bubbles, but neither one of us had bubbles on our list. I, I was never a bubbles guy. Like, Me either. I, I just Me never, either. like, I didn't, some people are like, he's the best character. I get it. I just never quite could get there with him. No, me either. Um, so Randy I threw in there because I believe that Randy is the perfect example of what makes The Wire great. Randy is a very minor character. He's one of the eighth graders who uh, from season four. He's Cheese's son, biologically right. speaking, which is cool because it's like it's the, the thing that show did so well, which is it showed it's like everyone is connected to everybody else. Um, but he has this he has this terribly depressing journey he's this like really bright happy kid he like he has this kind of like side business um where he's like uh he try, he sells candy and stuff and he like yep. you know and 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 it's the one of the wonderful things about that is that uh because cheese is randy's dad that means uh, so cheese's uncle is prop joe which means randy is also related to prop joe and like i like which to believe great. that they were like <laughs> they were like randy is uh his like 
sort of entrepreneurialism is in some way inherited from prop Joe, you know? Um, but uh, the reason I, it's, it's such a tragic story because he starts, he, he witnesses a crime and he gets put into the care of characters that you think are, are pretty good guys, right? Like he ends up, uh, he, he, Presbo takes him aside and it talks to Daniels, I think. And then Daniels gives him to Ellis. Uh, right. And, and it's like, we're going to take care of this guy. And then, and then like, Herc gets involved somehow and it's bad. And eventually what happens is he ends up in a foster home and, um, and he's a snitch. He's labeled as a snitch and he just gets the crud beaten out of him routinely. And this in it's the, in the most, one of the most devastating scenes I think is Carver who is sort of responsible for him. Ellis Carver. He, he goes to try to help Randy because he suddenly feels bad and when you see Randy at the end of the series, he's like 30 pounds heavier yep. and he's not yep. smiling at all. And he's like, he's just this incredibly like hardened guy. And he just has no time or interest in helping anyone or anything. And he's like, he's just become like, he's becoming like a, a, a gangster. Basically he's like gone to the dark side and it's just a perfect example from beginning to end in the margins of the show about how the system, how these calcified systems just chew up and spit people out. Even when those people are good people who are happy and are trying and want to do the right thing. I just love the way that he, you follow his little journey. I, I, it, so uh, it's really for that reason. It was like, what a, what a wonderful, incredibly economical way that they show how messed up the kind of entire system of all these different systems in Baltimore are. So that's really the reason it's not like, yeah. I, I not, he also, I think that actor is really good. I don't even know his name, but I think he's really good. And um, I, I just, that, that was my, uh, that was my reason for choosing Randy. And, and, and I will say to our credit, to Jonathan and, and my credit, that is what we said. That what we said, we said that you probably chose Randy because he sort of is representative of the, of the cost of of these of 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 the wire the yes. cost of the, this kind of life uh, I will give you one uh, one thing that Jonathan said in general that I think you will get a huge kick out of uh, I was very very pleased to get McNulty uh, like in the third round I had him like one pick ahead of you I also took the first overall pick so I could get bunk. Uh, I didn't take the first overall pick. I took the second pick so I can get bunk ahead of you, uh, which I thought was rude of me <laughs> to do that. But I, I, I want bunk, and, and I felt that was important. Anyway, I took McNulty in like the third round, and I was very pleased. And Jonathan, who is a very reserved guy, very, uh, you know, he's very laid back, very quiet, very reserved guy, uh, was great to get him on the show because he he's that's not his normal thing. Is he's he's very reserved. I I took McNulty, and he went. Oh, that guy's a coach killer. Whoever, whoever here, whoever's coaching your team, that's. And I thought, you know what? You're right. Great that point. was a, I took him too high. That was a strong. That was a very, very strong pick. McNulty is not. He's not coachable. He's not a he's good really teammate. Yeah, no, he's he's like Swaggy P or something. He's just going to annoy everybody. <laughs> I thought it was great. Well, all right. So um, another successful podcast. We made it. Um, right. So as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me.